I'm going to read God's Word and not have Ashley have to do that. How's that sound to everyone? All right. Luckily, I put my notes in the passage of the Scripture we are reading today, so I don't even have to flip to it. You don't have to see how bad I am at finding a passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 7. All right. Is everybody with me? All right. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is, also, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though... Uh, she marries another man. So, brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who has raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known that what, cover, uh, what coveting really was if, not, if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that, that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 13 did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, uh, it produced death in me, though uh, through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, and that is in my sinful nature. But I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks. All right. When I was in fourth grade in Norwalk, Iowa, 
My friends and I rode our bikes to Casey's General Store, as any good young man in Iowa ought to do on a summer afternoon. We were going to buy some things uh, that kids buy at Casey's. I don't know, nerds, orange soda, those types of things. Butterfingers were a big deal, I remember, with my friends back then. We were going to buy uh, some of that stuff, but as we were going there, my friends, they hatched a plan. They were going to steal some baseball cards. This was the plan. So when we were in the back, so we were in the back of this Casey's, and these masterminds were hatching their plan. Here's what it was. One of my friends was going to distract the checker at the counter, and while she was distracted, my other friend was going to stuff as many packs of baseball cards down the front of his pants, as many baseball cards as a 10-year-old's underwear could hold. And, when, uh, and then we were just going to buy our pop and our candy, and we were going to go about our business and, and, and leave. Now, this was the scariest thing that had ever happened to me at this point in my life. Uh, and I was so scared by it that as this Ocean's Eleven crew tried to pull off their, their, their baseball card heist, I just kind of hid in the back behind uh, the big waters. You know how they have the big waters at the back of Casey's? Just hoping to God that I was not going to be associated with this. And you know what? The plan worked. They got away with it. We bought our pop and our candy, and we got on our bikes, and we rode back to my friend's house. And when we opened the cards to see what we got, or what they got, because I wasn't coming anywhere near these uh, stolen cards, uh, we got a Ken Griffey Jr. baseball card. I don't know if any of you are my age, but if you're my age, Ken Griffey Jr. was a very big deal, and this card was very nice. It was shiny. It had holograms on it. It was the best card in the pack, and it's the only one I remember coming out of those packs. And though I was horrified and scared by what my friends did, uh, I wanted that card. So before I left, when the guys were in the other room, I stole the stolen Ken Griffey Jr. card from my friends. Have you ever heard the phrase, there's no honor amongst thieves? I felt like Ed Norton in The Italian Job, if you've ever seen that movie. And when I got home, I remember feeling horrible. Horrible. Like I had been infected by something. Like something had actually infected me. Sin gave birth to sin in me. I felt very much like what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. I felt as though I had been in some sense captured by sin, that I was its slave. And although I knew what was right, I, I was horrified and embarrassed and tried to avoid what my friends were doing when they were stealing those cards. I knew that though they violated the law of the great state of Iowa, and that they, they violated a deeper kind of law that was over and above that law, my own sinful desires had been fanned into flame by the breaking of the law that my friends did. My good impulse to distance myself from their sin of stealing these cards, once the crime had been committed, opened up space in my own heart. Psychologists call this a plausibility structure. Created a plausibility structure for me so that stealing the cards from them became far easier. 
It was the stealing of the cards from the Casey's that was, a vi- that was the violation that seemed to create space in my heart for another theft. And so- sin, in a sense, sprung a trap on me. Does that make sense? Now, what I want to point out to you this morning is that while I was horrified by the first crime, I was no better than my friends. No better at all. The same evil desires that lived in them lived in me. The law constrained my behavior a little bit, but it didn't make me any better than them. But once we left the store and I saw the card, it became clear that that same sin that ruled in their hearts ruled in mine as well. It was just that I uh, had a few things that kept it at bay a little bit more maybe than they did for a moment at least. And I think this little story has a lot to do with what Paul is saying in chapter 7 of Romans about sin and about the law and about the seeming inability that we all have to be freed from the power that sin has over top of us. Now, have any of you ever heard this phrase? The phrase is total depravity. Anybody? You can raise a hand. I told, the, I told the team this morning we were going to talk about total depravity today and that it was going to be a great service and everybody's going to feel wonderful about themselves, right? It's a pretty intense phrase, right? Total depravity. We get this phrase from, uh, it's really a theological term that we get out of the 16th century reformers kind of by way of St. Augustine in the 4th century. But total depravity is one of the foundational beliefs of reformed or Calvinist Uh, the Calvinist theological system. Now, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not reformed uh, to some of your chagrin, but I believe in total depravity. I believe in it. But the phrase total depravity is actually, I think, a bit misleading about what the Bible is actually talking about when we use this phrase to describe what the Bible is talking about. It does not mean that a human is a every human is a hundred percent bad. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that we're all 100 percent bad and that we can do no good. Some people take it to mean that, but I don't think it means that at all. That we are apart from Jesus, incapable of doing anything good. I don't believe that. That is patently false. All you have to do is walk around the world and see a bunch of people who don't know Jesus doing good things. Good and beautiful things can come from anywhere at any time, right? By the grace of God. And the Bible actually teaches us to affirm uh, and to appreciate the good that we see in culture and in nature and in art even if it's not Christian. Because as we've spoken about before, beauty can be a kind of pathway we walk to God. I think beauty is the most, especially in a postmodern era, I think beauty is the most effective apology for the, for the reality of God in the world. It's a pathway we walk to God. But what total depravity is not saying is that people are incapable of doing good. Rather, and this is a definition by a theologian named Paul Zoll, he says this, total depravity means that the depravity Uh, that the depravity of our makeup extends to every part of us. There is good and bad in the usual mix, but there is some bad in every single part. Depravity's reach extends to every corner. That's what I think total depravity is. Some good and some bad, and there is no part of us that sin does not touch. And if you think long and hard about your life, you'll know it to be true, won't you? Even the best impulses we have are touched by some bad, aren't they? Let's take, for instance, 
something that we believe to be pure, more pure than any other thing, right? The love for our kids. The love for our kids. I love my kids. I love my kids so much, it's hard for me to get my head around how much I love my kids sometimes. Last night we were carving pumpkins, and the big kids and I were throwing frisbees. Uh, Amos was getting paint handprints on the house, which was great. June was eating rocks and used birdseed. Birdseed that had been used by the birds, which is very unsafe. Uh, <laughs> it was a beautiful night. Ashley and I went to bed going like, this was a beautiful evening, wasn't it? But my love for my kids is tainted by my sin. Sometimes my love for my kids becomes an occasion for my sin. Because I love them in ways that serve my interests. Does this make sense? I love them because of how they make me feel. Or what being a parent does for me. Or how beautiful they are and how that increases my status as a human being. (laughs) or something, right? My kids can turn into something that I cling to to give my life meaning and purpose, and so I coerce them into doing and being certain ways in order that they reflect good on me or that they they communicate love to me in the way that I think it needs to come towards me, right? So I love my kids, and I truly love them, but sometimes I love them because of the feelings that they give me, right? So this is why you will hear parents say to their grown children things like, we raised you and we put food on the table and a roof over your head. The least you can do for me is come home for Christmas, right? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can admit that even on our best, best days, even, if, even in our healthiest moments, There is no part of us that is not still touched by selfishness, by greed, by lust, by sin. And though we work hard to constrain those desires, right, to bottle them up at times, to hide them, even the best parts of us are marred in some way, shape, or form. Even a good rule with a good intention becomes a means by which sin increases in our lives. I think this is what Paul is talking about in verse 5 of chapter 7 when he talks about how the good law of God can be used to arouse sinful passions in our hearts even though it is a good law. Basically, I believe what Paul is saying in chapter 7 is that there is a fundamental incongruity within humanity, within within every human heart. You can call it total depravity if you like. I think that's a, that's a helpful term. It sure scares people if you're ever at a dinner party and you want to talk about it. But Paul calls it in this passage, sin acting within us. Sin acting within us. That we are out of sync with ourselves in some sense. That there's a true self that we are that is in some way marred or out of sync with the reality of who we are because of sin. Sin fractures us and it has separated us from our true self. It blinds us, it coerces our will, and puts us in a kind of slavery, Paul says, to self and to sin. And at this point, the truth in the, that the scriptures teach about humanity and, our, and our, the, the ways in which we are marred or broken and the ways at which the, the, our truest self is somehow 
um, bent or, dis- or, or made to be not what it was created to be is diametrically opposed to what our culture often communicates to us. And this is an important piece this morning. Culture tells us that we are the most free when we unleash, when we are unleashed to follow our own internal desires. When we are free and unencumbered in such a way as that we allow whatever we want and whatever we do to set the course of our lives. This is what culture tells us. That to find our truest self, we must let something that is inside out. Does this make sense? This is what culture tells us. Maybe culture tells us sometimes there might be something slightly wrong with us, right? But it's not on the inside of us. It's definitely external. And the way to solve that is probably just to buy some things that make that better, right? Or, you know, buy a Peloton. That always helps, right? Sometimes that, in, that impulse or that, that realization that we are lacking in some way uh, comes to our minds, and marketing just leverages that to sell us things. But, but inevitably, even if there is a slightly broken thing about you, there is some technique or there is some knowledge or there is some new fitness equipment that you can purchase or some group you can join that will solve that problem automatically, Right? Paul, actually, in this passage, some scholars say, is, is going after, in his day, a philosophical tradition called Stoicism. Now, I only bring it up because there's a kind of new Stoic movement going on right now. If you're on Instagram, you'll see these people who are really talking about the Stoic philosophers and the way in which they live their lives by this new Stoicism. But Paul, in this passage, is actually directly addressing the Stoics. And he's addressing them because the Stoics believed that the transformation of the self could be produced through the acquisition of knowledge. So the only thing you need, and this is what we hear from sometimes, is enough head knowledge in order to change the thing you don't like about yourself. If you lack uh, self-control, for instance, well, then you just need to learn the habits of self-control. You just need to gain enough knowledge, and then from that jumping-off point, you can fix that problem. This is what the Stoics believed, that that through the power of the will and the power of the mind and the acquisition of knowledge, one could change their own heart. But Paul and the scriptures in Christian theology say something quite different than that, right? They don't say that what you need in order to be free and your truest self is to let the inside out. And they definitely don't say that through some technique or the acquisition of knowledge, you can, you can transform or heal this inherent brokenness. They just see, say neither of those things. It tells us that in order to find our truest self, something from the outside must come in. This is what the scriptures say. That something from the outside of me, something I don't have access to, must come into me. Within ourselves, we are broken, we're partial, we're cracked vessels, sin-marred images of God, still valuable, still beautiful, but sin-marred. You see, true knowledge of our own brokenness leads us to a place that I think Paul is near in chapter 7 of Romans. After making it clear of the kind of disassociated state of the human heart and mind when it's controlled by sin, this is what Paul is doing in verses 16 through 20, he, he comes to this place of understanding the, the reality of the human condition. And what does he say in verse 24? He said, what a wretched man that I am. 
Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But here's the thing about that passage. It could feel quite hopeless, right? If we're just left in that place, my goodness, what are we all doing here, right? But I think Paul writes that sentence specifically because he knows what's going to come after it in verse 25. And here's what he says in verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, the thing that makes the realization of our total depravity so very hopeful, and I believe that it is, is that it makes us perfect candidates to receive the grace of God in Jesus. The thing that you need from the outside of you is deliverance, right? That's what you need. And that deliverance comes to you as a free gift of God's grace because of what Jesus did on the cross. You see, the atonement of Christ on the cross is the divine action by which God's grace is freely offered to strugglers like you and me. It is the power by which we are saved from sin and death that we are inherently subject to. It is the great act of unearned, unmerited, undeserved, unconditional grace. And this is good news. And it is the key to finding your truest self. The self that God created you to be. A self that actually, when, when you step into right relationship with Jesus and you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, is able to take grace-aided steps towards freedom in Jesus Christ. Towards your truest self. To become less duplicitous in your heart. Because that's honestly, I think, one of the healthiest, not healthiest, one of the most accurate definitions of sin. Sin doesn't want to just make you do bad things so that you get punished. Sin wants to separate you from yourself. Sin wants to drive a wedge between the you that is you and the you that sin wants you to be. I think this is, very, I think this is what Paul is getting at in verses 16 through 20. This is why when somebody is uh, deeply sinful, they are not coherent in any sense of the word. Have any of you ever watched any of those gangster movies? I don't know, Goodfellas? You shouldn't watch them. This is not an advertisement for watching Goodfellas. Unless it's on TBS and they take out the cuss words and then you can watch it all you want. Uh, sorry. That's a joke. Uh, it's a joke that I do. The, um, but here's the thing. Those gangsters, what are they? They are unpredictable, right? They don't know themselves. They are not in any way in touch with the reality of who they are, whether it's Tony Soprano or whoever, right? They are, they are out of sync with the reality of who they are. Sin wants to keep you distanced from your truest self, your most whole self, your most unified self, your most complete self. It doesn't want you to be anything good, right? It doesn't want you to be anything whole and holy in this world. You see, sin is not something you do primarily that, that keeps you away from God. Sin is a power that holds us in its grip and wants to separate us from ourselves and from our Creator. This is what I think a, a healthy biblical definition of sin actually is. And so when we are reunited with Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are able to take grace-aided steps of transformation towards Jesus towards our truer selves, 
when we are saved by Jesus, we are not per made perfect, right? We are made righteous in the sight of God, but we are not made perfect. But in the power of God's Holy Spirit, we are able to live, what we were talking about last week, into our identity as being in Christ. And that frees up space in our lives for us to grow more healthy. And so the natural progression of a life lived in Christ is a life where we take uh, regular and routine steps towards our truest self. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me? So that's important and good. And we talk about transformation and spiritual growth and discipleship a lot here at Grace Community Church. But that's not my point today. Because that truth of transformation, as, as true as it is, has to be held in tension with this truth of grace. That, and that truth, that truth of grace, is the truth that at all points and at all times, this side of the resurrection, we are failing desperately. That sin is hiding in the corners of even our best impulses and actions. But when we fail, just know that you can fail right into the big beanbag chair of God's grace. I don't know if that's a theological definition, but it sounded good, it sounded good to me when I was writing it. We can know from that place of grace and faith and hope and trust in Jesus that you are safe because of the grace of God. Even when the specter of your own brokenness looms very large over your life, and it will from time to time. This is why confessing our sins in church is something Christians do, not because we want to feel bad about ourselves, but because the very act of confessing our sins is, a, is an act of hope because we know and believe in the grace of God. Does this make sense? We confess our sins, hopefully, as Christians, because we know that when we confess our sins, grace is there to catch us, right? So it's never an unhopeful act. It's never an act of self-flagellation. Oh, horrible human that I am. There's always hope behind it. Because we confess our sins, we can know that we are already forgiven. We acknowledge that there are those sins in our life and that we have and there are times to lament those sins, right? So I'm not saying there aren't time to lament and submit those sins to Jesus, which is what we're doing when we're confessing. But confession is only of value if forgiveness is readily available, right? Why would I confess my sins if forgiveness wasn't available, right? <laughs> Somebody's like, uh, okay. Just for the record, this is why people who have lived particularly broken lives... People who have ruined marriages, lost jobs, wounded other people differently, even people who have committed horrible crimes and are in prison. This is why these type of people seem to be in touch with the grace of God more than other people who try to pretend that our lives are great, right? Like, and truth be told, in some ways, those of us who like to pretend that our lives are great, and I point the, you know, when you point a finger, how many fingers are pointing back at you? Your thumb? I don't know three or four, whatever. This is what I like to project, right? I come from a good family. My parents are lovely. Everything's great. There's no sin in my life, right? It's, it's far harder for those of us who put up the facade of our doing all rightness to re-engage with this reality of God's grace, which is why it's so important for us to be in touch with this concept of total depravity. 
Because if we do, we're just going under our own steam. And I don't know about you, but my own steam is very discouraging. Right? But the grace of God is a lightness and a goodness and a kind of wind that carries me along my life. As I know that there is nothing I can do that can outstrip the love and grace of God. There's nothing I have done that can, that can outrun the grace of God. And that no matter how broken I am, in Jesus, I am forgiven. And I am made clean. And even though I have difficulty still, and I stumble, and I fall, the grace of God is there to catch me. This is what makes grace so amazing. And this is why the, it may, the, the message of our own brokenness is such good news. You see, very often in our lives, very often in our lives, we walk through life non-dependent upon the grace of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus made available to us in that. Because we just don't feel like we need it, do we? It's very often, you know, like my car's running, right? The lights are on. This week our dishwasher broke and I had to go get a new dishwasher and I put it in and I didn't pray once about it, right? Because I know how to put a dishwasher in. It only took me 20 hours and multiple cuts on my hands, <laughs> right? I know how to do these things. <laughs> I am a man of means. I know how to buy a dishwasher half off at Lowe's. But when we reconnect to the reality of who we are and the reality of our brokenness and the truth of what God wants to say and do in and through us and the, and the love that always is streaming to us in the grace of Jesus, it puts us in a, in a posture, in a position of great humility and great dependence and great hope. And my prayer for all of you as you read Romans and listen to me and hopefully don't get too wet as you walk out to your cars in a couple moments, that as you go from this place, you will learn what it means to be dependent on the grace of God because you are in touch with just how broken you are. Amen? Would you stand with me? Olivia, would you come up, play the piano a little bit? So here's my thought for us as we leave this morning. I think it's quite possible that one of the most hopeful things we can do together this morning as we go into our week to depend on the grace of, of Jesus, to put us in a position where we're living based off the grace of Jesus is to confess our sins. How's that sound? We're not going to do it out loud. We're just going to do it internally, all right? But just in a moment of... Um, reflection and the, as the Spirit of God is here moving amongst us in your mind and in your heart, would you just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what sins do I have to confess today? Not because there is any condemnation in that reality, but because in that place we learn dependence on the love and grace of God. So, let's ask that question now in an attitude of prayer, wherever you're at. Just ask that question, Lord. What sins are in my life that I need to confess? And we'll just take a moment in silence and wait.
And now would you just hold that sin that you want to confess before God? And I'm going to pray a prayer of confession for all of us, all right? So just hold that in your mind and in your heart before the Father, and I'm going to pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you as we should. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We humbly repent of the sins we hold before you, and we give them over to you now. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. And as your pastor and the person with the microphone, <laughs> I say to you, your sins are forgiven. You're clean. All right? And you can go today in the grace and the peace of God, knowing that this was not one thing that happened one Sunday, but that it is a total orientation of your life, dependent on the grace of God, living in the grace of God, connected to the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. Would you go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ?